I'm going to invite uh, Pastor John Day to speak to you just for a couple of moments. And, uh, and then we're going to hear the word from Pastor Rob. How many of you registered to vote? Man, may I tell you one thing this year? Vote. Be sure to vote. I mean, if you're not registered to vote, go ahead. It's okay. We don't condemn you for it. You pray for those who are. It's too late to register right now, but it's not too late to pray. It's never too late to pray for those who are going to the polls. In fact, you could pray that some who are going to the polls would stay home. God give you, God give you wisdom as you pray. I'm going to read something to you this morning, the best I can. Written by Matt Barber, who is with the Liberty Council. And some of you will say, Pastor, you go too far. Others of you will say, you've not gone far enough. John Adams, our second U.S. president, famously observed, our Constitution was made only for a moral and religious people. It is wholly inadequate to the government of any other. The U.S. Constitution, indeed our entire republic form of government, was crafted by deeply pious men who were overwhelmingly Christian. It was fashioned within the context and framework of the Judeo-Christian zeitgeist of the time and and was further intended to function in harmony with a Judeo-Christian worldview, period. Though leftists may deny this reality, it remains indisputable fact, the historical record, is unequivocal. Patrick Henry said this, It cannot be emphasized too strongly or too often that this great nation was founded not by religionists, but by Christians. Not on religions, but on the gospel of Jesus Christ. George Washington agreed, saying, Of all the dispositions and habits which lead to political prosperity, Religion and morality are indispensable supports. In vain would that man claim the tribute of patriotism who should labor to subvert these great pillars of human happiness, these firmest props of the duties of men and citizens. Reason and experience both forbid us to expect that national morality can prevail in exclusion of religious principle. I'll say it, I agree with George Washington. These godless, postmodern, secular socialists who today hold the reins of government are unpatriotic. Fringe leftists like Barack Obama, Nancy Pelosi, and Harry Reid seek to subvert Washington's great pillars of religion and morality and are distinctly un-American for it. Part and parcel of Obama's agendas has been to push at a fever pitch the most extremist, pro-abortion, pro-homosexual, anti-Christian agenda in American history. Indeed, in contrast with the deeply held religious and moral values embraced by our founding fathers, today's America is governed by an immoral and irreligious chief executive. Barack Obama is the high priest of secular socialism. He seeks to undermine, if not altogether dismantle, the American exceptionalism that hitherto has been fundamentally woven throughout our national fabric. He aspires to the lowest common denominator. He seeks to uproot Ronald Reagan's shining city on a hill and relocate the land of the free and the home of the brave to a much lower altitude alongside those Euro-Marxist nations he so admires and wistfully desires to emulate. The U.S. Constitution was neither intended to nor can it work in harmony with the postmodern secular socialist worldview embraced by those on the political left. Such a worldview is, by its very nature, counter-constitutional. Whereas the Constitution was intended to guarantee individual liberty and justice, limit the size and scope of the federal government, and secure freedom of speech and religious expression. The goal of the secular socialist is to control nearly every aspect of an individual's life, to massively expand the size and scope of the federal government, and to suppress, if not altogether, smother 
freedom of speech and religious expression. To the secular socialist, the Constitution is a relevant document only insofar as it constitutes an encumbrance of progress. It must be circumvented and overcome at all costs and by any means available. Why else do you suppose President Obama has called our original, quote, contract with America, the U.S. Constitution, quote, an imperfect document, a living document that reflects some deep flaws in American culture? Rather than properly viewing our Constitution as a God-inspired tool to be used in furtherance of Washington's indispensable supports of religion and morality, this arrogant little man with singular resolve and discipline forges ahead with his thinly veiled yet wholly destructive left-wing political agenda, namely to, quote, fundamentally change America, end quote, to reflect his own secular socialist self-image. Au contraire, Mature President, enter the Tea Party Revolution, a national clamoring for a return to our nation's founding principles. America has coldly and quite vocally rejected Obama's anti-American agenda. You've heard it said, but I'll say it again, people with conservative values, particularly Christians, need to take America back. We must take charge of government at every level, from the municipal hall to the White House. It's time for men of the cloth, as they did during the first American Revolution, to exercise true leadership, return to the pulpit, and call for national revival, both spiritual and political. As George Washington so astutely observed, the notion that political issues and those of religion and morality are somehow mutually exclusive is patently absurd. They are one and the same. Am I calling for a theocracy? Of course not. Am I calling for men and women of strong faith to retake control of all high-level positions of influence in government, academia, media, and entertainment? Absolutely. The late, great Reverend Jerry Falwell perhaps said it best. Quote, I'm being accused of being controversial and political. I'm not political. But moral issues that become political, I still fight. It isn't my fault that they've made these moral issues political. But because they have doesn't stop the preachers of the gospel from addressing them. Biblical values must once again guide our political and cultural decisions and discourse, or tragically, this great American experiment, having survived longer than any governmental system in existence, may be at its twilight. Still, I somehow doubt that the sun has set on this, the greatest nation on earth. To borrow from a truly great president, Ronald Reagan, come November 3rd, I suspect instead we'll once again awaken to a bright new future. We'll once again awaken to mourning in America. Christians, make it happen. I've also attached here, and I have 50 copies of this if you'd like a copy. I know you can't memorize all that, neither could I. But I've attached to the top of it Romans chapter 13, verses 1 to 10. I've, I just simply put, how should I vote? I left you the scriptures, Romans 13, 1 to 10. And I've attached to it also simply the notes right out of my Spirit-filled Life Bible, if you happen to have that. I just put the footnotes there and the Bible references that are included in the margins. And I've also included a short uh, article at the end that's called Why Should a Christian Disobey Civil Government? And just to give you some foundation for how should you vote, I get asked every year, how should I vote, Pastor Jeff? Some of you I know are waiting to hear from me. <laughs> and if you want to know how I'm voting, you can just email me at Pastor Jeff at BigBearChristianCenter.org and uh, say, hey, I want to know how you're voting. I'll send it back to you. And it's okay. It's legal for me to do that. By the way, you know all the threats that the uh, ACLU and all these guys about taking away um, the uh, tax exemption of churches where pastors stand up and do stuff like this? Guess how many have actually won and have uh, been had their freedoms taken away in America because of that threat? Not one. 
Not one. You know, they're like, <clears throat> they got a lot of bark, but they don't have any bite. We're within our legal limits, of course, to say things like we're saying and to endorse candidates. Not as a church body. You can't say Big Bear Christian Center as a church body endorses so-and-so. We can't do that. But I can stand as a pastor and tell you who I'm voting for. I can tell you who I endorse. And one of those men is John Day, locally. And so I want to just give him, Pastor John, a moment to greet you and uh, do a little stumping. People have asked me, why in the world do you ever want to get into politics? And part of the answer is, we don't have a choice. Open up, if you would, to First Peter chapter 4. Verse 10. First Peter, chapter 4, verse 10, to start with. Each one should use whatever gift he has received to serve others, faithfully administering God's grace in its various forms. I first got into politics because it was absolute chaos on the Community Services District Board, and I was attending all of the meetings because I was a chaplain for the fire department and had been for a number of years before that. And when I saw more and more of the chaos that was going on, the, the yelling, the picking apart, and all the rest of that stuff, I decided this is insane. And I decided to run, to which people then said, John, you're insane. <laughs> and uh, the strange part was, for some reason, I won. <laughs> and that was five years ago. Uh, this is a peculiar situation because terms are normally four years, but we changed the voting thing to make it conform with uh, the uh, congressional races. And therefore, they added a year to the uh, to the last uh, set. Anyway, one of the reasons why I chose to uh, run again is because we're not done yet. We're not done yet. But the fun part for me has been that CSD has grown so quiet and professional and caring about one another as board members and as staff and management in that organization, that the Grizzlies stopped attending. <laughs> and uh, that's uh, one of the reasons why I desire to continue in that, uh, in that activity. And I just want to read one more scripture right across the page, you might say, from where uh, I had you read it. And it's chapter 5 of First Peter, and it's verses 2 and 3. And this is what I've tried to live by. Be shepherds of God's flock that is under your care, serving as overseers, not because you must, but because you are willing, as God wants you to be. Not greedy for, in some translations it's money, but also is not greedy for authority, but eager to serve, not lording it over those entrusted to you, but being examples to the flock. And to me, that is the whole thing that I'm trying to do, to continue to be an example to the flock of what it means to try to be a moral and ethical representative of this community. Don't withdraw from politics. Don't do that. 
don't object to what just happened a few minutes ago up there because that's where this country began was in the pulpit and realize that there is no such thing as separation of church and state anywhere in the Constitution or the Bill of Rights. There are no words like that anywhere in there. It's in a letter from one of our founding fathers, but it's not in the Constitution. And so don't let anybody ever stop you from considering being a part of this community through a political position. If you'd like John Dee's simple statement, there are some copies on the on the table in the hallway today, and uh, I recommend you vote for John Day. In fact, you ought to tackle him in the parking lot and say, "Who else should I vote for on that board?" And he can tell you that. Gene uh, and and uh, Jim Dennis here have the handouts. If you want one, please just raise your hand or take one, and uh, I hope it's helpful to you. It's helpful to me to keep a biblical worldview uh, over here, James. Keep a biblical worldview when you're voting. That's the point. You know, when you see that those leading the nation are anti-Scripture and against the Bible, you, know, you just have to take the stand with the Bible. You just have to. Ladies, I, I really like this scarf, and I'm going to give it to my wife as a gift if I can't find out who left it here. Last week, somebody left this. No, it doesn't look good on me. Anybody? No takers. Peggy's getting a new present. That's great. We find things around here, and I just wear them. Sooner or later, somebody says, you know, I used to have one just like that. And then I take it off and give it back so they can have it. Looking forward to hearing the word from Pastor Rob, and I'm going to give Lou Engel a break here this morning. Let's welcome Pastor Rob by singing to the 40-year-old. He turns 40 on voting day. Happy birthday to you. Probably too low, sorry. Happy birthday to you. Happy birthday, Pastor Rob. Happy birthday to you. We're going to have an open house party at his house. Not today. Next Sunday. It's in the bulletin, okay? In the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. And the earth was without form and void, and darkness was upon the face of the deep. And God said, Let there be light. And there was light. And God saw the light. They went good. talk to you about perspective. With everything in life, there are different perspectives. In the video that we just watched, there's at least two different, distinct perspectives presented. And one perspective is the world is in crisis. It's in chaos. It's in turmoil. It speaks to our fears, our worries. It speaks to the natural, and it speaks to the negative. In this video, we saw distress, death, destruction, and disasters. There is, however, another perspective presented in this and that is that God created everything and that he is coming back soon you know to some that will bring incredibly good news beyond measure good but to others that will be worse than the news 
that was presented in the video that we just watched. Your perspectives are formed from individual points of view. Much like four different people standing at the corner of an intersection, watching an accident happen and then describing it afterwards. Each person has a different view of the accident scene because they were standing at a different spot when the accident happened. Perspective, which literally means through the view, through the view, is formed as much from the inner man, though, as it is, is the physical world that he's looking at. Perspective becomes formed because of, out of the person who's seeing what he's actually seeing. Perspective becomes perspective when what is seen is processed and filtered through our mind, which is made up of our knowledge, it's made up of our experiences, our fears, our hopes, our worries, and so on. Our perspectives are formed because of those things which we've experienced and those things that are inside of us. Our perspective is not made up only from what truly exists, but it exists from the multiple filters that we have in our life. So this morning, I want to talk about one filter. I want to talk about one filter that causes our perspective, and I want to raise that one filter above the rest. And in order that... In order to do that this morning, very briefly, I'm going to go to the beginning and lay a foundation. And we're going to move quickly. We're going to move quickly So, in this first part because we just want to lay a foundation. Now, if you're here this morning as a saved person, if you've asked Jesus to forgive you of your sins, if you're saved, it's imperative that you know and remember what you've been saved from. And if you have not been born again, if you're sitting this morning in, in here with us and you've never been saved, you've never asked Jesus to forgive you of your sins, it's imperative that you understand what you need to be saved from. All this began in the beginning. Adam and Eve in the garden. God created everything. And He created man and woman, Adam and Eve, the first of all humans. And we know the story that Eve took of the forbidden fruit. She was deceived by the serpent. She took of the forbidden tree and she gave to some to her husband who was with her there in the garden. And the Bible says that Adam sinned. Eve was deceived and Adam sinned. And sin came in to the, to the world through that one instant. And God shortly after began walking, looking for Adam and Eve, and he knew where they were, but he called him, where are you? Because he knew something had changed. They had been removed from his presence. They had changed what God had intended them to be, and they confessed their sin. And God, it says, made a covering of animal sins, skins to cover their nakedness. For the first time, Adam and Eve knew that they were naked. They had shame because they had sin in their life. Now, God took an animal. This was the very first animal sacrifice there was shedding of blood so that God could cover over the shame, the sin of Adam and Eve. Romans 5.12, and, and don't look these up, but write them down, and they'll also be on the website if you want a complete list. These I'm going to read quickly. Romans 5.12 says, Therefore, just as through one man, Adam, sin entered the world, and death through sin, and thus death spread to all men because all sinned. Through one man, Adam, sin came into the world. Because of that, all men die. Romans 3.23 says that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. The important thing to see in there is that all, all have sinned. In Leviticus 17.11, back in the Old Testament, it says that it is the blood that makes atonement. For the soul, it's the blood that covers over and forgives sin. And then in Hebrews 9.22, it says that without the shedding of blood, there is no remission. There is no taking away of sins without the shedding of blood. So if we're following along, Adam sinned. And we needed a sacrifice. And God started off with the first animal. Because there is no forgiveness of sins... There is no remission of sins without the shedding of blood. 
Romans 6.23 says clearly, the wages of sin is death. All of us in here at one point in our life were dead because we were sinful. The wages of that sin is death. You know, we go out and we work and at the end of a day of work, we're hoping to receive good wages. When we sin, and some of us have been very good at sinning in the past, when we go out and sin, the wages we receive for that work is death. Revelation 20, 14 and 15 says, Then death and Hades were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. Anyone not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. That was us. That was us. Our names at one point were not written in the book of life. We were unsaved. We had no sacrifice for our sins to cover us, to forgive us. And we were destined for death. We were destined for hell. But God. But God. And so let's finish that. Romans 6.23, the first part says that the wages of sin is death. Yes, but praise God. It says the gift of God is eternal life in Jesus Christ. We were all doomed for hell, all doomed for death. We were lost. But the gift of God, Jesus through Jesus Christ, is eternal life. And Romans 5.8 says that God demonstrates His own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. We were sinners, we were rotten, there was nothing good in us, yet Christ died for us. In Romans 10.9 and 10 says that if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised Him from the dead, you'll be saved. For the heart one believes unto righteousness and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. And that's how it's happened for many of us in this room. We believed these things. We knew we were separated from God. We knew we were lost and on our way to hell. And we believed in Jesus and confessed with our mouth and a few verses later, Romans ten thirteen, it says, Because whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Whoever. We started with all have sinned. And we end with whoever calls shall be saved. That's who we are positionally. We're saved if we've done those things. But we need to remember as Christians where we came from. And sometimes the longer you've been saved, you, we forget that we were once in darkness. So who are we positionally? The moment that we, we were saved, life changed. Everything changed for us in this room. And if, if that's not you by the end of this message, it could be you. But the moment we received the sacrifice for our sins, everything changed. I'm going to read some other scriptures. And here's where we are today. See, God did not appoint us to wrath, the Bible says, but to obtain salvation through, through our Lord Jesus Christ who died for us, that whether we wake or sleep, and that's talking about whether when Jesus comes back we're alive or dead already, that whether we wake or sleep, we should live together with Him, therefore comfort each other and edify one another just as you also are doing. That's First Thessalonians. He didn't appoint us to wrath. God didn't want us to be in wrath. And those who've called on the name of the Lord have come out of the wrath of God. Ephesians 5.8 says, You were once darkness, now you are light in the Lord. Once we were darkness, but now we're light. In First Peter 2 Verse 9, it says, but you, turn to your neighbor and say, you, that this is talking to us. This is great. You are a chosen people. You are a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness. We've been called out of darkness into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now. 
You are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you've received mercy. This is who we are. That's who we used to be. We are now a people of mercy, a holy nation, a royal priesthood. Life, everything has changed because of Jesus' sacrifice. The Bible says that you have been bought at a price. But we need to read the whole thing. It's 1 Corinthians 6.19 says, Do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit? Do you know that? Your body is the temple of the Holy Ghost. He is in you. Whom you have received from God. You are not your own. You were bought at a price. The Holy Spirit lives inside of us. We're not our own. We were bought at a price. Hmm. Because we were bought at a price, and the price was Jesus' death on the cross. The price He paid was great. A price that none of us could have paid, but He paid it for us. Because He paid us, paid that price, it puts us in a whole nether realm. And the Bible says that we're not of this world. In John 18, Jesus said, My kingdom is not of this world. I am not of this world. And if we become part of Christ and we're part of the kingdom of God, then we are truly not of this world. You know, that little NOTW bumper sticker is great, but the message behind it is getting lost because that, you know, I think that there are more Christian cars in Big Bear than there are Christians. <laughs> you know, we got this sticker on so many cars. Are we really not of this world? Or is it just kind of cool looking? We have been raised with Christ. Colossians 3, listen to this. We're no longer part of this world. It says, since then you've been raised with Christ. Set your hearts on things above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things, for you died. I'm looking at a room full of dead people. I see dead people. We died. And our life is now hidden in Christ with God. Positionally, that's us. We are dead to the world. Our life is hidden with Christ in God. And when Christ, who is our life, appears, then we will appear with him in glory. This is who the body of Christ is. This is who you are today. If you've called on the name of the Lord. It's not who you are if you're living a good life. It's not who you are if you're trying to keep the law. This is who you are if you have called on the name of the Lord Jesus to be your Savior and Lord. Because of Adam, sin entered in. We died. We died. We were dead in our sin. Our goal was hell. That's where we were headed. And if we would know if we if without Christ, one day death and hell will be cast into the lake of fire. That would have been us. Because we needed a sacrifice for our sin. Jesus provided that sacrifice, but the only way that sacrifice would work for us is that we needed to receive that. We needed to appropriate his gift to us by believing, receiving, confessing. It says, believe in your heart, the Lord Jesus Christ. That encompasses so much. It's not just, yeah, I believe in God, but believe he is your Lord, the Messiah, the Savior. The moment we did that, everything changed. We went from hell bound to heaven bound. This whole thing forms part of our perspective. It should. We were lost and we're not lost anymore. This begins to form part of our perspective. I was once lost, but now I'm found. I was blind, but now I see. Not just good words from a song. Truth. I was once dead, the Bible says, I've been made alive in Christ. 
I was an unholy people. And we become the holy nation. We used to be part of the kingdom of this world. Now we're part of the kingdom of God. We used to be servants of the devil. Now we're the royal priesthood. We were once destined for hell. And now we're heaven bound. Amen. 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 Oh, I'm thinking of my brother's song. Someday I'll have to play it. He wrote, and that was the chorus of it. I'm heaven bound. Whew. Thank you, Jesus. That should form part of our perspective. But there's another thing that needs to form our perspective as Christians. And that is this. This world is not all there is. This world is not all there is, church. There's another place. Jesus went away. He told us he was going to prepare a place for us. And that he would come back and receive us to himself. Keith Green used to say, and some of you know of Keith Green. He was an amazing man of God. One of my heroes. I didn't even become, he died before I became a Christian. But he used to say, you know, God took seven days, six days, really, to create the earth and the heavens. Jesus, 2,000 years ago, said he was going away to prepare a place for us. If it took God six days to make all the universe and the earth, and Jesus has been working on heaven for 2,000 years, we're living in a garbage can (laughs) compared to what's to come. Do we get this? Jesus is coming. He prepared a place for us. The return of Christ needs to fulfill and to form the other part of our perspective. You know, that should fill our minds every day. That should guide our lives, it should guide our decisions. The fact that Jesus is coming again and that we're part of his kingdom should guide and direct our conduct. We saw the message. Behold, I come quickly. If that's true, that he's coming quickly, and I know that it is, why do we live the way that we do? Why do we look at the negative and live not, not as sinners, but even our point of view, we live in such a natural state of mind. We can become overcome by the things around us and we live in depression. We need to change our perspective. William Cobertson, who was a late president of Moody Bible Institute, said this. And it's convicting to me. We can speak so glibly about the coming of our Lord and about the judgment seat of Christ. You do not truly hold the truth of the doctrine or the teaching of the return of the Lord Jesus Christ until that teaching, until that doctrine holds you and influences your manner of living as the Bible says it should. You do not truly hold the truth of the doctrine of the return of the Lord Jesus Christ until that doctrine holds you and influences your manner of living as the Bible says it should. We believe it, but do we believe it? I believe this is the time where we have to be like the disciples when Jesus says, do you believe? And they says, we believe. Help our unbelief. We need to get real with God. We can't just play the church thing and play the Christianity thing. We need to be really real with Him and say, God, I believe, but help my unbelief. Because we have both. We have both. But as we begin to change our perspective and begin to believe the Word and set our hearts and minds on things above, then this truth that He's coming back will begin to guide and direct our lives as the Bible says it should. 
I've got a number of passages I want to read this morning. These will all be on the website. You can get them later. I just put some together about the return of Christ. It's from the Word of God. They were looking intently up into the sky as he was going when suddenly two men dressed in white stood beside him. Men of Galilee, they said, why do you stand here looking into the sky? This same Jesus who has been taken from you into heaven will come back in the same way you have seen him go into heaven. Matthew 30, 24 says, as it was in the days of Noah, so it will be at the coming of the Son of Man. For in the days before the pl- flood, people were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage up to the day that Noah entered the ark. And they knew nothing about what would happen until the flood came and took them all away. That is how it will be at the coming of the Son of Man. Two men will be in the field. One will be taken and the other left. Two women will be grinding with a handmill. One will be taken and the other left. Therefore, keep watch because you do not know on what day your Lord will come. But understand this. If the owner of the house had known at what time of the night the thief was coming, he would have kept watch and would not have let his house be broken in. So you also must be ready because the son of man will come at an hour when you do not expect him. First Thessalonians five says, for, you know, very well that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying peace and safety, destruction will come on them suddenly as labor pains on a pregnant woman and they will not escape. Jesus is coming soon. But the day of the Lord, second Peter says, will come like a thief in the night. The heavens will disappear with a roar. The elements will be destroyed by fire and the earth and everything in it will be laid bare. For as lightning that comes from the east is visible even the west, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. They will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds on the clouds of the sky with power and great glory. And he will send his angels with a loud trumpet call and they will gather his elect from the four winds from one end of the heavens to the other. And at a time of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that will never be destroyed. Nor will it be left to another people. It will crush all those kingdoms and bring them to an end. But it itself will last forever. That's the kingdom that we belong to. So he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. He who overcomes will not be hurt at all. By the second death. Do we believe it? Do we have an ear to hear this morning? Because Jesus says in my father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you. I am going there to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me. That you also may be where I am. He's promised. He's faithful. He's coming. He's coming soon. Like a thief. In the night. In Revelation, we read that this heaven, this heaven that God said he was prepared for us and that he would take us to where we will be with Jesus forever is a place of unimaginable beauty. Let me just read one passage in Revelation. Revelation seven, sixteen. Never again will they hunger. Never again will they thirst. The sun will not beat upon them, nor any scorching heat. For the lamb at the center of the throne will be their shepherd. He will lead them to springs of living water. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. That's what's waiting for us. That's what's waiting for the believer. We're going to go to a place the, the Bible describes it just so amazingly beautiful. He's going to take us with him. And we'll live there forever. Think back for a moment at the worst day of your life when you were four years old. And you said, I can't remember it. The things that we go through on this earth, earth are, is nothing 
Nothing compared to the glory that's coming. Nothing. These things are what should form our perspective. We're not of this world, church. We're of somewhere else. We should look different. We shouldn't be living hopeless, sad lives. We shouldn't be discouraged and downhearted. We shouldn't be so worried about the things happening around us. Not that they won't affect us. I'm not saying to ignore them. But we shouldn't be so affected by them if we have our focus on the things to come. If we have our heart and our mind set on God and eternity, then the stuff going on around us is really nothing. See, the kingdom we live in in the United States may just well, may well be destroyed even in the next few years. We can't be shocked at the prospect that the way we've known life for 40, 50, 60, 70 years could very well in the next 10 be over. It could happen. We see the economy. But we are not of this world. We're of somewhere else. These things shouldn't affect us like they affect the unbeliever. Because we know where our citizenship is and we know who our provider is. He doesn't have a long white beard and wear red, white, and blue. Sam never died for us. This is what should form our perspective. We of all people have everything to rejoice in. We have so much. I was once going to burn forever. I've been burned before. Been burned in fires and you know, if we want to know about fire, we should have Pat come up and talk about fire. There was a man in this church a long time ago. He was a retired fireman and he was witnessing to some young kids. And they said, oh, he was talking about hell. And they said, oh, we want to go to hell. He says, you want to go? He says, oh, yeah, because we're going to party there with all of our friends. And this, this old retired fireman, Knox was his name. He looked at him and he just looked at him sternly and says, oh, you won't be partying there. You won't be laughing there. You'll be too busy screaming from the pain. Kind of woke those little arrogant kids up a little bit. But he knew what fire felt like. He had been burned. And that's where I was going to go. Imagine being burned. The pain never stops, but the fire doesn't go out. You say, I just wish all my flesh would... Rot off and so I couldn't feel this anymore. No, that's not what you get when you're in hell. It says the worm doesn't die. And that's what I deserved. And that's where I was going. And if I don't rejoice in that which God did for me and the place that I now am, I've lost sight. I've got the wrong perspective on life. I need to get his perspective and begin to rejoice and say, thank you, Jesus. Second <laughs> Corinthians 417 says that our light affliction, which is but for a moment, is working for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. While we do not look at the things which are seen. Unemployment, economy, foreclosures, hyperinflation, bad relationships, earthquakes, famines. We do not look at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporary. But the things which are not seen are eternal. We have to get our minds off of these things and begin to rejoice in God and, and set our hearts and minds on eternity. 
And that's going to begin to change our perspective. Did you hear what that what it said in there? What is seen? What is not seen? Perspective. Are we going to live only because of the things our natural eyes see? Changed by the things filtered through our life experiences? Are we going to take the filter of Jesus Christ and look at life through His eyes? Through the eyes of eternity? You know, I, I, I've gotten under the circumstances too much in recent times and I'm, I'm tired of it. This week was a great wake-up call for me. I need to get the right filter back on and start looking at life through the filter of eternity. I'm secure. The world can never take away what I have. Never. Ever. Why am I so concerned about it? Oh, there could be times of trials ahead. Trials that we've never in this country ever faced. But they can never take away what I have because I'm not of this world. And any day, whether it's tomorrow, next year or in 10 years, Jesus is going to call me home. In the twinkling of an eye. We were lost. And God found us. He paid the price so we didn't have to. And after giving us that, he says, and I'm going to come back. I'm going to bring you to a place. I'm going to bring you to my place. Heaven. Do we think enough about heaven? We need to begin to set our minds on those things coming. We need to get our hearts and minds off of the things of the world. They might take away my car. They might take away my house. Those things are real. But they're not as real as heaven. They're not as real as our salvation. They're so temporary, so temporal. Begin to go, God, thank you. And let the rejoicing begin. Mm. You know, I just went to the... 80s and remembered therefore the redeemed of the Lord shall return and come with singing unto Zion and everlasting joy shall be upon their heart therefore the redeemed of the Lord shall return and come with singing sometimes I think I let myself and we let ourselves get under the circumstances so much that if that didn't change, Jesus would come back and be going, Therefore the redeemed of the Lord. Oh, it's been so bad. Arise, shine. The light has come. Second Peter 3. Go ahead and turn there with me on this one. Second Peter three, starting in verse eleven. Since everything, someone say everything, everything. even our bills, our bills. Everything will be destroyed in this way. What kind of people ought you to be? You ought to live holy and godly lives as you look forward to the day and speed its coming. Do we really have the ability to speed its coming? He won't come back until everyone is heard. We need to get out there and bring the joy of salvation, not the drudgery of church going. Joy of salvation. I said joy. (laughs) 
smile. See, it's, it's on us. We've got to shake this thing off. We've got to shake this thing off and begin to live in the joy that God gives. We speed its coming. That day will bring about the destruction of the heavens by fire. And the elements will melt in the heat. But in the keeping with His promise, we are looking forward to a new heaven and a new earth. The home of righteousness. Amen, Pastor Rob! We're looking forward to this. You'll be Pentecostal yet. So then, dear friends, since you now this is skipping down a little bit, so then, dear friends, since you are looking forward to this, make every effort to be found spotless, blameless, and at peace with Him. Verse 17, Therefore, dear friends, Since you already know this, church, this isn't new news. But this news has been obscured from us, hasn't it? We've allowed the enemy to come in and just take this away from us and we can't even see life through the eyes of eternity any longer. Many of us. We got a different filter put in front of us and we've been trapped by that filter. Ah, but God, since we already know this, be on your guard so that you may not be carried away by the error of lawless men and fall from your secure position. Let's not be carried away by the error of the news. Let's not be carried away by the error of our neighbor. But let us truly fix our hearts and our minds on Jesus. And on His kingdom. We don't want to fall from our secure position. In our salvation. We don't want to fall from our secure position. As living as the redeemed. The glorified. Set apart ones. He whose kingdom is not of this world. But instead. We want to grow. The exhortation is grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To Him be glory, both now and forever. Amen. He is the Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We've heard in Colossians to set our minds on things above. We need to look forward to His coming. We were reminded that these light afflictions that we're going through are just momentary. And nothing in comparison with the glory that's to come. In this last set of scriptures, it encouraged us, it says, to grow in the grace of Jesus Christ and grow in the knowledge of Jesus Christ. Are we growing in the knowledge of Him? Personal, intimate knowledge and knowledge of Him through His Word. We need to be growing. Why? Philippians 8 and 9. Philippians 4, 8 and 9. says, finally... Brothers, and it's, it's getting close to finally because it's 11.20 and I'm going to close. <laughs> so you can say, finally. finally. <laughs> See, now we're getting Pentecostal. <laughs> if we get out in the next 10 minutes, you can beat the Baptist to the buffet. <laughs> finally, brothers. Whatever is true. What is truth? Whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. Set your heart, set your mind on things above. We have to get our minds. Remember, this, this world, compared to heaven, is a trash can. we got to get our minds out of the trash and onto the kingdom. We spend so much time vexing on this place. But we're going to begin to set our hearts 
and our minds and our affection and be about the kingdom of God. And he's going to change our perspectives totally. We can't let the enemy detour and distract us any longer because we are not of this world. We can't live lives as woe is me and poor little me any longer. We need to get our affections off of us and off of this place. And I guarantee as we do that, our joy will begin to come back. And it will begin to return. Not because our paychecks got bigger. But because we we have the right perspective on our life. Take it all away, but you can't take my Jesus from me. He's got such good things for us in this age and the age to come. They're just not always the things that we have been trained and tricked into believing that they are. The good things he has are not always the things that we want them to be or think they should be. But he's got great things for us. Hallelujah. Let's stand. Remember, at the beginning of this time, I said there was two possibilities. And those of us who are saved, who've received Jesus' sacrifice. And I said there's those who might be in here who've never done that. Who've never received a sacrifice for their sins. And I laid out very clearly. The scriptures teach us very clearly that we're lost without Jesus. This can be the day that you say, you know what, I've heard this message. And I know that I was a sinner. The Bible says I was. And that my destination was hell. But I'm going to receive his sacrifice for my sins. I'm going to make him my Lord. Because it says the Lord Jesus Christ. He'll become the master of my life. And he'll come back for me. Today is the day you can do that. I'm convicted this week. I preach this message out of what God has been stirring in me and getting my mind off of the dirt and onto heaven. And I'm going to fight to keep that perspective because the enemy is going to come in. He's going to try to take that away from me again. And I'm going to fight because I want to be heaven-minded, eternity-minded. And I need the joy of the Lord to come back. And that joy of the Lord is going to be infectious. And others are going to see it and say, how can you have so much joy in these difficult times? And we'll know what to say. If you're able, lift your hands to the Lord. God, this morning we thank you for who you are. We declare again that you are Jesus Christ, our Lord. We thank you that you are coming back to take us to yourself someday and that the place that you're going to bring us to will be glorious. God, forgive us for getting our sights off of you. Forgive us for looking at the things of the world. Forgive us for neglecting the kingdom of God. Today, Lord, give us a new perspective. God, help us to view life through the lens, through the filter of eternity. Through the lens and filter of our redemption. Through the lens and filter of the Word of God. Lord, I pray that deep joy would return to our lives. Because of that, the enemy's plans and assignments have been canceled in the name of Jesus. You cannot lie to us. You cannot discourage us. You cannot bring us into depression any longer because we are children of the Most High God. God, come quickly to take us home. But Lord, come quickly into our life. Help us to see you more. Help us to get rid of the things that are clouding you out. Lord, as we would begin to rejoice together, God. 
Into the marvelous light we're running, God. Out of darkness, out of shame. No more darkness, God. No more darkness on our thoughts. We rejoice and we choose to rejoice in you and we choose to look through your filter. In the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. I, hallelujah. If you're not together with believers on a weekly basis and encouraging one another, get into a small group, into a lighthouse. We need to begin to change the tide. Let's become what God intended us to be. Amen. Amen. Hallelujah. Have a blessed day. Thank you very much. By grace now I will come and take this life. Take your life. I might get a gun on my birthday. I'm going to get a gun on my birthday.